This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. We welcome you to Bite Into It, where we discuss computing, new technology, uh, internet, all the good stuff, really. Uh, tonight on the show, uh, I'm joined by Simon Leo Brown. Simon, how are you tonight? I'm very well. How are you? Smashing, in fact. Um, I see you've got a, a rather uh, dazzling T-shirt there, uh, Pulse Fighter. What's, what's that about? Uh, yeah, eight-bit cranking tunes, my friend. Ah, okay. I actually, actually bought this uh, at the Square Sounds Festival in Tokyo, which is the sister festival to the Square Sounds Festival in Melbourne, oh. who we have had on this show many, many, many a time. They are uh, serial guests. Um, how would you rate it compared to the Melbourne one? Can we smaller, smaller. Yeah. Um, we are the centre of chip tunes in the well, universe. I, it seems. Well, I, I think the Netherlands might be the centre of chip tunes in the universe, but. Right. Uh, yeah, where Melbourne's running a close second. Also in the studio, it is Dan Salmon. Dan, how are you this week? I'm great. How are you this evening? Not too bad. Uh, I'll also be on the show tonight. I'm Warren Davies. It is uh, a big show tonight. Um, we're very excited uh, to be bringing some of this great stuff to you. Uh, the story of the web uh, does run parallel to the story of erotica uh, and porn and also how we connect uh, in the search for love and sex. Uh, by ranging across a variety of uh, media representations from online dating to cyber porn, uh, a new book, Intimacy on the Internet, uh, from an Australian author, tells a new story of the Internet's impact on love and sex. Uh, we'll be joined by the author in just a few minutes uh, to talk through some of the stuff that comes out of that. Uh, Clever Man um, is a, a show that I haven't caught yet, but I am going to do so uh, as soon as I get home. Uh, recently finished on the ABC, and it marries Indigenous mythology with dystopian futurism. Uh, show has encouraged us to take a look at black popular culture, and for us on Bite Into It, that uh, means black nerd culture or blurred culture, uh, as I found out it is known. Uh, Nuyuka Gori uh, will be joining us. Uh, she'll be giving a talk on blurred culture at the Wheeler Centre here in Melbourne on November 24. So we're going to take a look at that as well. But before we do, uh, we're going to take a look at what's making news in technology here and around the world. And uh, if you're in the States, it is still uh, Ada Lovelace Day, um, which was on October 11 this year. Uh, Dan, what's that about? What's Ada been? So, so uh, Ada Lovelace Day is a, is a day that uh, celebrates um, women in uh, STEM, so science, technology, engineering, maths, uh, the areas that we're all uh, extremely... Uh, I suppose in love with here at Byte. Uh, Ada, Ada Lovelace is, um, was a, I, I don't love maths for the record. You love maths, don't get me wrong. Okay. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's essentially a, a, a day, uh, Ada Lovelace obviously a huge, uh, history, a historical figure in, uh, tech and, uh, science. Mm. Um, and obviously a pioneering woman in the, in those, uh, regards. And so it's, it's a day to celebrate women's, women's achievements, women's, uh, contribution and, uh, women's, I suppose, issues in, uh, science, technology, um, and the, and those uh, areas. There's a whole lot of uh, interesting, uh, cool events uh, around the world. Um, excuse me, uh, including you know live gigs and talks um, across the world. It, it it does focus in the US and the UK, but um, I I've, I've uh, been uh, following it. Uh Pretty well. <laughs> it's uh, it's early days for it. It's only been going for for four or five years as a day, mm. um, and I, I guess you know it is a novelty, and it's the not the sort of thing that we should be um, sort of focusing on. Um, but um, yeah, interesting. I, I think any uh, excuse to talk about um, STEM in particular uh, is really important. So that's great. Um, yeah, events take you know all kinds of forms. There's Wikipedia readathons, pub quizzes, um, and there's for women of all ages. So uh, it, it, 
if, if, if you're interested in getting involved maybe uh, next year or if you can get to the US and within 12 hours. We can do that. <laughs> uh, uh, I will do maths if we get to go to the pub. That's okay. Um, one thing that hasn't been quite so good is the demise of the Galaxy Note 7. Uh, Simon, uh, it is a sad tale. What's your take on this? Well, it's everyone's favourite spontaneously combusting smartphone, isn't it? Mm. Uh, I thought it was interesting how it's a sign of the times how much uh, it, other parties had to take part in this. You know, I mean, for Oculus um, completely uh, said, "You, it, we won't work with your phone anymore. Yeah, uh, put it down, put it away, send it back," mm. which is, I guess, fairly. Fairly smart in the fact that if you're going to have a spontaneously combusting smartphone, you don't really want to strap it to your face. But uh, the 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 VR gear was a selling point of the phone, or at least it would have been for mm-hmm. me. Um, it was one of the reasons that I was interested in it. I don't know that other Samsung phones do the same thing. Uh, but, you know, the apparently Samsung's stock price has recovered a little... Um, but that is the way stock prices work. They take massive tumbles and mm. then they recover a mm. little. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll see. It's, it's interesting in the fact that they, they now, they're stuck with only one top end smartphone. Oh. Uh, which, you know, is, is interesting that they, they had this kind of two pronged approach. Yep. Uh, and, and that has now not worked. Hopefully they weren't planning on using the same technology, same battery technology in, uh, the Edge, mm. in the new Edge, which I believe is due to be released soonish in the next month or so. Mm-hmm. Um, because it's, you know, about, there's probably some pedaling, backpedaling being done, but I don't know. I mean, it, it is going to be difficult for a company to recover from this much bad press. I mean, iPhones have burst into flames before, but not uh, in, in quite such large numbers. And I don't know. I, I wonder how much how much do we love our phones? Are we going to are we are we going to forgive Samsung for you know? potentially burning down our homes for like just because they make really shiny nice things that we like i think um with the galaxy i mean it's probably the second biggest phone out there um people do love it um if you like android they've been a a good friend probably more reliable than htc and a few other makers out there um yeah i I think a few exploding phones is not necessarily going to hurt their long-term prospects but there's probably a, a big hit to take on the stock price in the short term, yeah. I did have to laugh that one of the, uh, one of the, when it was still available, yeah. they did a big push on mm. the fact that it was waterproof. Yeah. And there was an ad showing, um, Oh, a guy, guy dropping it, guy dropping it in, into yeah. the sink, which yeah. I thought, that's fantastic because yeah. if it starts bursting into flames, you can just throw it in the sink. Throw it in there. It's perfect. Um, one of the other phones that you can throw in the sink, uh, if you don't like it, is the new Google Pixel phone. Um, they've released a bunch of new devices and probably the most heralded one of those is the Pixel. Uh, it looks remarkably similar to uh, another um, smartphone on the market, but um, it is actually, uh, by many early reports, uh, a fairly decent phone. Um, have you guys have you guys come across this one yet? I mean, 
it's it's supposed to have an amazing camera, is it not? Is this, this yeah, is um, the major selling point? Is the, they all 4, do. 4K, though. I mean, this is stupid. I mean, we're getting to the point. 4K video from the people who I have talked to is a pain. You know, it is too big to really deal with on most devices. So it's storage. easy to film, but it's very difficult to cut. It's very difficult to work with. So yeah. I, w- I wonder. I mean, I mean, then, you know, devices are going to get better at coping with the huge quantities yeah. of data that we're that yep. we're using but um the google phone uh i'm wondering what the t's and c's are like because you know i mean what extra level of data can they collect on you as you're wandering around with a google phone that all they can't it. already with android all of it the key features are the new uh, operating system uh android 7.1 uh nougat um which looks pretty good uh there is a google assistant uh to put it um in the space of uh siri and uh corona uh corota uh, the microsoft one which i always forget um <laughs> there is uh yeah a 12.3 megapixel rear camera uh which is really good um yeah, um, good processor. Um, yeah, a bunch of good launches and stuff like that. Um, build quality looks okay. Um, battery life is said to be quite good, around seven hours for a 15-minute charge, so it makes it really fast. Mm. Um, I have a lot of trouble with the one I use in terms of battery life, so um, good battery is really important. But um, we'll see. Um, the first the first week or so has been really positive. Um, Does it have a headphone socket? Does it have? No, you can draw one of those. Okay. You'll be okay. Um it was interesting, just on the battery, on the data collection thing, I, I guess I was stupid in not realising this, but uh, it took someone to point out to me the other day that the uh, the traffic data on uh, Google Maps is all generated by people carrying their Android phones around. Mm. So the movement of phones. So when, when it says it's red here, it knows that people with Android phones are just simply not moving very fast on the freeway. And so, I mean, that sort of level of cloud-based data of you know mass mass data extraction is is amazing at what what it can do but yeah I, it, it's an interesting thing to think about as these companies who we're not necessarily used to trusting or at least yeah people tend to sort of sign over their data complain about it but still do it um and whether have it but actually having the phone whether that's going to be one step too far, I don't know. Maybe it's not. Maybe, you know, you'll be sitting on a Facebook laptop next time we speak. Who knows? Uh, one thing that we, uh, well, one thing we, we um, have to question when it comes to trust is the makeup of the uh, uh, NBN committee, uh, the Federal Parliamentary NBN committee. Um, a uh, veteran national senator, uh, John Williams, was actually uh, pushed aside uh, by the Turnbull government to make room for One Nation leader Pauline Hanson um, after a, a recent um, uh, dosi do uh, on that committee. Um, the Hanson block, uh, or One Nation, um, has allowed the Turnbull government to get certain pieces of legislation through. So uh, it looks like it could be a, a bit of, um, uh, I guess, um, supporting their best interests. Um, John Williams, when he did step aside, said uh, he wasn't particularly concerned so long as there was national on the party, uh, on the committee. Um, obviously, NBN is a huge issue for the nationals and uh, access to fast internet is really important there. 
there is no particular reason that's been put forward from One Nation as to why they want to be on this committee, but uh, I guess strategically, and because they tend to overlap with regional areas fairly well in terms of support, um, it does make a bit of sense. But um, we'll have to keep an eye on that. I don't actually know a lot about uh, One Nation and their policy on the MBN, but um, I guess they deserve a chance to put that forward. So maybe we'll find out what they have to say. Interesting. Uh, the machinations <laughs> of, of Canberra and, and cabling. Intimacy, uh, sex, the internet, um, all these things combine in really nice ways and we're always pleased to, to talk about it. Uh, Dr. Lauren Rosewarn is a senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne. Uh, she's the author of seven books and specialises in gender, sexuality and popular culture. Uh, she has bashed out another book, uh, Intimacy on the Internet, um, which uh, I do have a, a nice little digital copy of. Uh, thanks for joining us in the studio tonight. Thank you for having me. Uh, how did you how did you come to this book? Is this the combination of a, a, a lot of years kind of staring down the, the noses of Melbourne Uni students, or um, no, have you um, always been kind of working on this one? No, um, I've got adult attention deficit syndrome, so every book I'll write about something completely different. So oh. I think this is more of a uh, a product of observing how the media loves to demonise uh, internet use. So, for example, if there's some sort of sex crime or murder you're going to have the internet um sorry news reporters tell us that that person searched um explicit pornography uh hardcore pornography or they were for friends example. on facebook or, or they something were friends like, on facebook yeah. or they were online dating yeah. and uh, this is seemingly quite normal as part of the back history there was an, uh, an article in yesterday's paper about uh, a murderer googling bride rape now i'm not entirely sure how we've gotten to this point in our history about we're so ready to have search histories because we've debunked that media made them do it and yet the internet Mm. we somehow consider it to be beyond media that it's somehow more insidious than that so that's part of my interest on one side then i've got an interest in popular culture about how this stuff plays out in our film and TV, not just our news. So this book is a sort of bringing together those two topics, looking at this sort of revolution that's happened in our private lives with the technology and yet and how it manifests in popular culture, which means that it's got this sort of cyclical uh, relationship where real life is mirrored on screen and then that really comes to uh, narrate our own experiences doing it as well, where people, for example, still feel a bit weird doing this even though it's 20 years old technology. Right, I think I'm just going to have to take a week off work because we could just like talk about this stuff forever. But um, we'll, we'll try and keep it um, on message if we can. Um, so when you say a, a revolution in, in sort of how we connect and what have you, what, what exactly do you mean there? Yeah, so once upon a time, the, the way people met was work, church or school. Oh. Now, these place, this still happens except for the fact that now we're not getting married at 22 years old. So most of us, by the time you meet your partner, and we're going to have a lot of partners across the life course now, it's unlikely that they're going to be like my parents who uh, got married at 22 and unfortunately, fortunately, depending on what day it is, still married f- f- nearly 40 years later. That's unusual and increasingly so. So now by the time we're in this sort of dating cycle, or at least we're still in the dating cycle we're not going to be at school any longer we're not a joining society anymore so we're probably not going to be churchgoers on the whole so therefore there's also huge costs coupling up at work because you know when it all goes to shit you're going to have to still see those people the next day and if you've seen them naked weird Mm. so you're looking for other ways to broaden your social circle and the internet has been doing that for people for, for nearly a little over 20 years, more in some cases, but mainstreamed, we're talking about 20-odd years. Yeah. 
And yet we've still got this perception that that's not an ideal way of meeting people. It's become statistically a normal way of meeting people, yet it's never the ideal. Talk to people and where they want to meet their partner is we bumped into each other on the street and our eyes met. Yeah. And that's this sort of serendipitous way that has romance attached, whereas apparently if a computer spits out a match, uh, there's a bit of a nerd factor. So, I mean, we've, we've been putting classifieds up since the 1600s, uh, according to your book. Yeah. Uh, it's not an unusual thing, and it has quickly been mainstreamed, um, as you're suggesting. So there's almost kind of like two conversations. Like Personally, we all kind of get it and yeah. understand it and either have done it or know lots of people who have, but at a kind of uh, meta level, um, it's still a, it's still weird and it's still an internet story. Yeah, and this is, I think, where sort of if there's a theme in, in my research, it's looking at, you know, I've written books on topics like masturbation and menstruation and they're both things that are 100% normal and yet there's such an ick factor about talking about them because there's still all these stereotypes and taboos where there's this strange paradox between real life and how we're doing our real life versus this idealised version we've got going where people are suddenly, all of us are meeting each other on the street after we've bumped into each other in this meet-cute way. That's not the norm now and yet we still idealise it and we still pretend that that's a should rather than a, a realistic um, meet. Do we have any idea of the percentage of couples in the last five years who... Uh, have gotten together through the internet. I guess it's it's only really difficult to get that sort of information. But do we do we have any sort of concrete figures on that? Look, it's hard because companies like eHarmony and Match dot com love to run television commercials, or they'll say something like they've coupled and married twenty five million you know people. Now, oh, it's statistically difficult because even if we're going to believe them, what happens to those couples? And that's where there's no research. Where is the data that does a longitudinal a longitudinal analysis? that tracks these couples because there's a lot of research that says the internet's great in helping us meet, helping us couple, but we often couple on compatibility factors when in real life you actually need more to, than that to stick together in the long term. And I think that's a sort of burgeoning area of research as well is that not just the numbers, which I don't exactly have for you because we'd be relying on Match.com's data, which they've got a bit of a vested interest, but what also happens to those couples in the long term. It's interesting you said that because I mean, last time I was internet dating was pre-Tinder, so that was a while ago now, but it says it was... You need to get back out there, son. Uh, <laughs> is it interesting that... He was so scarred. <laughs> well, We're just building him back up again. The, uh, it was interesting to see that the... Um, that, you know, I met a, a series of people who I, I perhaps were... Uh, was maybe politically aligned with or, um, or, or aligned on certain interests. Maybe we both liked Twin Peaks. But really, apart from that, it was... There was nothing there. And it was a series of that. And, it was, you know, there was a couple that worked better than others. So uh, I guess what I'm, what I'm grasping at asking is, is the internet getting better at coupling people? Because when I last tried it, it was still pretty terrible at it. The reality is it's becoming more about just sheer quantity, as opposed to which something like eHarmony sells itself on is though it can ask you 30 million questions and finally distill that perfect match. No, it's still an algorithm and it's still matching you on things such as geography and your love of pets mm. and your preferred body shape. Now, in reality, is if you've met someone offline, you know that there's actually a whole lot of intangibles that you 
can't put down on a it, that that aren't able to translate to simply a, t- a check on a box, and then it's more complicated than that. But what's on, and I think Tinder's an even better example where it's even less using. Uh, well, tools of refining your matches, but rather it's actually just bringing it back to a photograph where you're literally just flicking through. But what it does do is volume. People are, can date, if they want, a lot more people. So therefore, you're just simply meeting more people. And I think that's its biggest success story, is about getting you to simply have more options and more choices in the hope that you'll eventually find someone that you have a bit more chemistry beyond your shared love of Twin Peaks. And that's something that doesn't normally happen in our real life because our lives don't put us in contact with a new batch of people every single day. Uh, some of the other themes that were interesting in your book are around uh, authenticity of um, online intimacy. So, you know, how real is it if it's happening online as yeah. opposed to, you know, in the meat space or what have you and, and the orchestrate the orchestrate itself, which is this idea that you can have multiple versions of yourself and, you know, you might be into Wilco on one platform and into Twin Peaks on another and, and what have you. Um, how important is that? Is that just a hangover of kind of we, we only meet at church or, or, or in the park and, and if we meet in a forum or something like that, then it's not real? Yeah, it's, 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 it's a complicated, this idea of authenticity is really complicated because the issue of, or I guess the advantage is if you meet in church, let's say, or no, 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 I'm not trying to stigmatise church, workplaces, the same rules apply. It means that you, these, that you're in an environment where you've been in before. Therefore, you're a bit of a known quantity. And Other, there's conventions. There's conventions, but also you've got a network around you of flesh and blood people mm. who can serve as testimonials, if you like. Hence mm. why people prefer to meet through friends for the yeah. same kind of reasons. Online, you don't have any of that. Online, you don't have a backstory, for example. You get to totally orchestrate that if you want, which means that you get to, for example, be wealthier than you are or better looking. Men are generally taller. Taller women are thinner when they're selling themselves online. When you meet, you can't maintain that facade. You don't, if you uh, actually insist on a sort of in-person meet, which, you know, people often want, you don't get to do any of that. So therefore, you have to either be your real self or try and maintain the facade of who you were online. That's very difficult to do in the long term. So if you're wanting in-depth relationships that go for a while as opposed to a casual hookup, there's this question of balancing your presentation of self versus the self you can maintain online. Then there are sort of, you know, uh, contributing factors such as some people are very witty in prose. For example, typing, yeah. they're great. They can't translate that sense of humour in real life. Then there are other people who find it really easy to build rapport with the written word but then stumble and aren't great with uh, presentation in real life. Mm. Matching, which makes uh, online dating difficult for some people because it favours people have, who have great language skills and can type really fast and type without typos and disadvantages others as well. It's interesting what you said about authenticity and uh, reputation because, you know, that's what you what you're saying. You, you get from church or you get from people knowing people because online dating is one of the few areas uh, where the sort of two-way rating system that we've come to with Airbnb or Uber or a bunch of other, it's become like a, a sort of standard on the internet, simply wouldn't work because you don't want to think about 
your potential partner's previous partners. Except that those sites do exist. Really? There are actually boyfriend review sites. I think a girlfriend review site would probably be considered sexist, which is probably one of the interesting double standards that exist in the current zeitgeist. But there are boyfriend review, you know, where women have gone on and said, I've dated this guy, he's a four or a three. And that was quite controversial when it came out. But I think you're right in the sense that we do expect, you know, uh, some level of a background check. Now, if in lieu of testimonials, because most of us aren't using those type of review sites, we Google our potential matches, don't we? We look for an electronic footprint. We try and find, do we have shared friends on Facebook? And I think that then creates this different uh, way of knowing a person where you actually know their electronic uh, them rather than their who they are in front of you over that coffee. For example, I haven't done online dating, but I have gone out with people who have said, for example, and I kid you not, I know you better than you know you, meaning that they've read everything I've ever written online and therefore feel that they have a perception uh, of the, I and know, then you've just escaped through the bathroom window. Yeah, well, this is the thing. It's like, but that's actually someone at least owning up to that. But I mm. don't doubt that in real life, that's actually how people are thinking that. Oh, I know your hidden music taste because I've so I have an in with you, and I, th- this has good and bad uh, aspects because I think people don't really feel known just because you've read. Uh, a couple of hundred articles that I've written <laughs> that we actually have a connection yet. Um, it's, it seems weird, frankly. I've got a, a friend who's just finished a, a master's project on uh, online identity and um, uh, gender and how we present and so forth. Do, do you get a chance to discuss any of those topics? I mean, yeah, obviously, I if you can present yourself in a variety of ways, um, it offers huge scope for, for being whatever you want to be and kind of anywhere on a scale. Can, can you tell us anything about yeah, that? Yeah, so um, some of the earliest research on the internet actually had that this was what people were doing, that the technology suddenly enabled us to be not only uh, sexier or funnier, but actually a completely different gender and that gave people this option of sort of playing around in chat rooms and being someone different so when people are surveyed you know flash forward 20 odd years and people still identify that that's what they fear that when i'm online dating i could be talking to if it's a man i could be talking to another man Ooh, so that sort of taps into homophobia but it also taps into this fear of deceit because if you're online dating Odds are, if you're actually using online dating to meet a person in real life, this ruse is only going to last so long. Mm. So that's, I think, a manifestation of sort of technophobia and um, mm. it's one version of, of the scary badlands of cyberspace. But I mm. think there's different manifestations of that. You know, people also talk about fears of, oh, what if they're uglier than their picture? You know, and this is this constant refrain of people using old photos on online dating as though this is a misrepresentation misrep- of self. Data shows people have actually done these studies. It's almost universal that people lie on online dating profiles. It might be small lies, like I'm a little bit taller than I am, a little bit thinner than I am, through to big lies such as gender. Mm. There's a, um, I saw something earlier in the week from uh, um, two tech billionaires. Of- funding an investigation into the matrix-like kind of um, um, sort of alternate reality that we're that we're living in, they're convinced. Bank of America actually put the odds that we're living in some kind of alternate reality as up to 50% chance, which is 
as mind-boggling. Like I, I'm not sure who's who's sort of crunching the numbers there. But if you turn on CNN and see any uh, the presidential debate the other day, I think some of us would believe that we're in an alternate reality at the moment. The, it's all, but something it was, doesn't seem quite right. Yeah. So I mean, you can you can start to you can start to confirm that and kind of you know check it against things. But <laughs> do, do you think is a is there any danger that um, what we get to create online or, or you know the people that we get to um, converse with or have time with and so forth is is there a harm that we're doing to ourselves if it's not kind of living up to the reality or is it just do we just say hey it's great we got to have that time online we got to be whoever we wanted to be you know no one lost an arm or anything like that so in theory you know no damage done there's such a lot in that question um so the first part i guess is that this question of uh is it perhaps a false duality to think Mm. that online and real life are, are completely different things i mean the fact is that you're typing in a platform be it on online dating or in a chat room etc that's still real life. That's still yeah. your fingers on a keyboard. And this idea of a real self, I think, is thoroughly flawed. I mean, uh, we were talking before I came on air. My day job, I lecture at the University of Melbourne. I'm a somewhat different person behind a lecture, lectern than I am when I come in here or when I'm with my friends. None of those selves is less authentic. It's just different versions that come out in different contexts. And I think this is an important thing to remember about when we want to talk about online life as somehow fake or different. I think it's probably more realistic to think of it as just different, but an extension of, of, of our actual being and who we are. I think that this... Uh, considering them different is uh, perhaps a way we try and rationalise difference, but it's not fundamentally a, a sort of different zone. But we like to give them different terms, we don't do. we? We do, we have to, because, we, we, you know, it comes from the language of yeah, cyberspace example, yeah. as a place. So, for example, you know, on online dating, you talk about ghosting, whereas in real life you talk about just being a prick. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think that there is now, are things changing? Look, it's hard to say because how are we this far into the technology and we're still having these terms like in real life or, you know, online, but also the media loves to fuel it. As I mentioned, you know, he Googled bride rape Mm -hmm. as somehow a character indictment. Now, I'm not saying Googling bride rape is a good thing. I'm simply saying that this idea that uh, online activity is our definer or, or that it's some sort of hidden or secret layer of our identity, I think it's more complicated than that. Well, fairly soon, if not already, a large number of are going to be spending more time online than we do not online. Well, and this is this this is this strange stereotype where we still talk of nerds and geeks as though you know. For example, Donald Trump did it in the first debate where he spoke about the four hundred pound man t- um, tr- trolling online or, or hacking, I should say, online. This stereotype, I think, highlights the fact that there are still going to always, you know, be people who have this strange perception of internet users, even though every single one of us is barely in arm's reach from being online all the time, you know. And that's actually our default way of information gathering now, and therefore this sort of strange, that's a nerd, that's the 400 pound person, and he's, you know, hacking from his basement is different to us. Mm, That's a strange distinction. Strange idea. Uh, Intimacy on the Internet is out now. It's published by uh, Routledge. Um, uh, Lauren, where can you pick up a copy of that? Or where can you find out more about the book? Uh, You'll empty your bank account and then you'll pick it up online. 
Right. <laughs> uh, academic books are incredibly expensive. Um, that so, uh, but you can get a digital copy uh, from the publisher. So that we'll put this up on our GitHub. That afterwards. makes it cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you very much for coming in. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Whenever we get a chance to talk about uh, nerd culture, uh, we are always going to grab it. And tonight, uh, we're joined in the studio by Nuyuka Gori uh, ahead of her talk on blurred culture at uh, Wheeler Centre in November. Uh, Nuyuka is an activist and writer, um, primarily concerned with black politics and feminism. Uh, she's written on all kinds of topics. Um, and thankfully, she now gets to talk about our pet topic, uh, which is cool. Uh, Nuyuka, thanks for coming in. All good. What's up, everyone? Uh, so, nerd culture. Uh, what, is, what does nerd culture mean to you? Like, what do you think of when people say that? For me, uh, a nerd um, are people who are, like, fixated on particular things, um, whether it's, like, science or technology or drama or mm. film or television or... Yeah, just the people who are fixated um, and quietly obsessed or very vocally obsessed about things, I think, yeah. What are you fixated and quietly obsessed about? Um, oh, a lot of different things. I think for me growing up, like, Harry Potter um, was a huge one. And, like, later on in life, really got into sci-fi and things like Doctor Who and that sort of thing. But now I think I'm just, I don't know, a nerd for observing society. Oh, that's so wanky. <laughs> no, that's fine. I was um, reading something about people were having a, a, a hissy fit about the decline of Twitter. And, like, that's that's a thing to be nerdy about. Like, if you're an information junkie, it's a great place for, for nerding out on all kinds of stuff. And yeah, it'll be replaced by something, though. It's like, chill out. You'll have another place to, like look at stuff, learn stuff, I don't know. Do you, do you feel like uh, Harry Potter was kind of one of the things that made nerd culture mainstream or easier to talk about nerding out about stuff? No, I think every every generation has had their, like, nerd thing. I think, mm. like, Star Wars for maybe... You guys are a bit older than me. Um, <laughs> the original Star Wars, you know, with Harrison yeah, Ford. Yeah, the original. Yeah, I think society's always had it had mm. its stuff that they, like, got around that um, kind of brought the margins in a bit. Mm. Um, so, yeah, Star Wars and, like, Star Trek. I don't, yeah, I guess I can't speak for Star Trek, but, yeah, I think um, definitely we're in the generation... Uh, we're sort of t- in the same generation, I think... Um, like, so growing up um, during primary school and high school, every single summer there was a Harry Potter film release in, from 2001 and also a Lord of the Rings released oh, as yeah. well. And then, um, and then yeah, and then The Hobbit after that. Um, yeah, and so, like, for my generation growing up, every single summer holidays there was, like, this thing to look forward to. And then on top of that you also had books being released as well. Uh, so there's been, a, I guess, a, a few things that um, have um, brought this topic to the fore. Uh, Firefly, um, Clever Man. Um, how did you come to... What's your connection with Firefly? What you- yeah, so, like, one time, 2008 or 2009, I was super hungover at a friend's house and um, there were, like, these nerdy white dudes. And, um, yeah, we, like, chucked on this TV show and I just fell in love with it. Um, I think, for me sci-fi and in particular firefly um it's a way to often as marginalized people like you it can feel like you can't see outside of your oppression or struggle but sci-fi allows you to imagine a different world and in this world or at least like they have a strong woman of color leading and she's like unapologetic and doesn't take anything from anyone um and her like her she's not othered in that as well um she's not 
her like blackness or whatever doesn't come up and they don't have an episode dedicated to her blackness and everyone dealing with it it's just like whatever she's just the boss um so like having that reflect having that reflected and then when i started talking i was talking to people today because i was like yo internet i'm going to be on this thing it was the same thing for other people there was a character on star trek a black woman on Mm. star trek for a lot of people she was the same for them as well um so we're able to see our reflections in a way that's not in society necessarily because it is an alternative world yeah it's kind of like um by going into space all of a sudden we get to talk about these really complex issues in a a non-threatening way and yeah everything's kind of equal yeah and we can we find ourselves rooting for people that sometimes in society we don't normally root for so in the case of firefly they're like these out total outsiders who don't exist at all in the sort of mainstream day-to-day life um, and I really identify with that as well they're very anti-authority they kind of don't necessarily recognize the sovereignty of you know of this um, of the government which a lot of black people here would also identify with so yeah there are a lot of parallels to be drawn yeah um, I think one of my favourite kind of like sci-fi space kind of um, the black nerd moments is uh, is it Danny John Jules as Cat in um, uh, Red Dwarf? Like yeah. that, that dude just had so much style. Yeah, um, pretty steezy. <laughs> he was. <laughs> um, so do you have sort of a, a lot of pop cultural references that you sort of um, refer to or do you just kind of um, like any good sci-fi culture or anything like that is oh, good fodder? Yeah, for me it's just like anything. I also really like Doctor Who. So it's not mm. all about like the blackness because mm. like if you're watching sci-fi you can't get around like nerdy white dudes. Mm. Um, and that's cool, I guess. Um, yeah, I guess, I don't know. It's just whatever's funny and... A little bit on the margins, I think. I was having a bit of a look under... There's some good tumblers sort of under the sort of blurred sort of um, category. Oh, yeah. Is, yeah. There, is there anything, any kind of places that you go to that you think are really good sources of uh, info on sort of blurred culture? Or well, is it sort of very US-centric, I kind of found? Or? Yeah, at the moment it is really US-centric, but there is a growing momentum. For example, we have a few, like, black cosplayers. Shout out to my homeboy, Keita Muir, um, who's... Yeah, he was in New York. Um, he's the black dude from here. He's Aboriginal, and he was over in New York doing... and he and his Corey partner were doing cosplay nerd couple stuff, which is, you know, just melts the heart. Um, but, yeah, I'm also part of a black feminist um, Facebook group and we're all Aboriginal and or Torres Strait Islander from here. Um, and so I, I just put the question out there. I was like, yo, black nerds. And mm. it just started the... There's a couple of hundred in, in us there, well, in there, whatever, English. Mm. Um and, yeah, all of these stories started, like, and intergenerational stories as well because there are people, you know, a little bit older and a few mm. who are, like, te- in their teens. So, yeah, some people were talking about Star Trek and others were talking about, like, Hermione and, yeah, it was really beautiful. Um, so we there are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nerds. We're definitely out there. <laughs> <laughs> um so if you uh, have you ever thought about um, writing some of this stuff or producing some of this stuff yourself or like what what would you like to do if you could um i so i do writing um mm. i think it would be cool i like there's a black writer hannah donnelly um she's a Wiradjuri woman she does like sci-fi climate apocalyptic writing i'm yeah, a big cool. fan of her work um and from what i can tell of her work it's like a way to um imagine sovereignty um yeah, or to reimagine or whatever sovereignty. Um, so I really like consuming it and I like analysing it, but I don't know if I have the creative brain to to produce it. Um, yeah, 
I think the thing people forget about black people is that we consume things. Mm. Like we are a market and we are consumers. I think when people associate us with consumption, they think of negative stereotypes like alcohol. They don't think of us out there, like out on the streets at 4am lining up for a Harry Potter book. Yeah. Fanfic is a thing though. Yeah, big time. And I imagine, as you were saying before, you know, with science fiction being the domain of nerdy white guys and so many and so many representations in in sci-fi catering to that that maybe that gap is filled by fanfic a little sometimes i do i've got a really funny story about fan fiction if it's cool with everyone uh recently i went up to sydney it was like a couple months ago maybe june or july and i did a really hot and raunchy erotic fan fiction about a eucalyptus and a waddle <laughs> that fall in love and get it on so that's kind of actually yeah that's a bit nerdy. That's pretty hot. It's pretty nerdy. <laughs> and, it's pretty nerdy. Yeah. Is it getting hot in here, fellas? <laughs> I might just need to breathe a little bit. It's the yeah. water in my nostrils, man. It's like hay fever season. Well, yeah. yeah, that was really funny because they're both like, am I allowed to like, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, yeah. They're both like the sluts of the plant world. Like there, there oh, are so many species, and a lot, the waddles are still speciating. So there's still like new species being mm. formed. Um, yeah, so they're like big time. Big time hoes and I'm, yeah, sex pause, love, love hoes. So yeah, um, that's a cool story about fan fiction that I did. <laughs> Just broken myself. Um, <laughs> if you want some more tree porn or anything, uh, along those lines, uh, there is a talk coming up at the Wheel Center, uh, in uh, November. Uh, Nuka is going to be, uh, speaking there. So, um, there's still be some tickets out there. I guess we'll, we'll tweet it out. Yeah, they're so like selling one. pretty fast because I'm um, like, Hot, hot property, property, right? Yeah, can't <laughs> get it. <laughs> there'll be a lot of, uh, yeah, um, horticulturists and uh, tree, tree people there, I yeah. imagine now. Um, thanks very much for coming in. It was thanks great. Thanks for having me, fellas. Contours, a month-long exhibition of playable games, zines, artwork, sculptures, videos, photography and other cultural gems, presents uh, In Conversation with Helen Stuckey, hosted by Chad Toprak. Um, that is happening uh, tomorrow uh, at the uh, Library at the Dock performance space. Helen Stuckey is an arts curator, historian and postdoctoral research fellow at Flinders University, um, working on Australia's early game history. She was director of uh, various... Uh, games and uh, digital commu- digital communication uh, schools. She recently completed her PhD on how museums can work with online knowledge communities on the preservation and exhibition of video games uh, as part of an ARC project. Contours is uh, be- being run uh, in partnership with the City of Melbourne and the Melbourne Library Service. We will be uh, tweeting out links to that. Uh, if you are interested in doing something uh, creative in that space, uh, NGV are doing a digital creatives program uh, introducing computer code to the gallery um, with the aim of getting, uh, I, I guess, um, more young people uh, through the doors. Um, for example, Picasso's uh, Weeping Woman uh, will come to life uh, for the first time as part of a uh, as part of the program. So you get to see it as a kind of like a three D or sort of um, yeah like a, a 3D image rather than a 2D image. This looks awesome. You can actually, like, manipulate the art based on the app. It's really cool stuff. I would strongly encourage people to get down to the NGV and check it out. Uh, a whole lot of the uh, Digital Creators program is the Art Code Create Workshops, uh, which was developed in consultation with uh, Code Club Australia, uh, a great group. Um, uh, so, yeah, um, they're using Scratch. Um, it's a program that's sort of got fairly wide adoption, um, and they're going to get uh, kids um, in there uh, having a play with the art, which is uh, which is great stuff. Um, another thing that, um, well, I'm not quite sure if it's great or not. Um, it's certainly a, a novel idea. Uh, Radar Cat. Um, Simon, what, what's going on with Radar Cat? 
It's uh, from the University of St Andrews in Scotland. Mm. Uh, according to New Atlas, it's basically using a chip from Google, which was designed to use radar to uh, detect hand gestures so that you could use your hands to... Uh, another way of using your hands to control mm. a smartphone or a device. Yeah. What, like connect and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what... Uh, what the University of St Andrews has done is uh, used machine learning so that uh, this thing called Radar Cat, which stands for Radar Categorization for Input and Interaction. I was really hoping it was going to be an actual Radar Cat when yeah. I got this, but this is just as good. Yeah. What it does, it, using machine learning, it build, it's built up a, uh, a database of objects that it can recognise using radar. So I guess that's interesting in the way, in, in the fact that it can immediately recognise objects using, um, in 3D space, uh, which may or may not be, uh, easier or, uh, or more accurate than doing it visually through some mm. of this uh, object identification. There certainly might be less noise in certain situations. Um, anyway, so it can identify, uh, objects, uh, sort of different qualities about objects. So it talks about whether a glass is empty or full yeah, or right. half full yeah. or half the, empty. The philosophers, uh, right Um, yeah, also, but it also talks about how, uh, maybe, uh, a phone equipped with this device could potentially detect whether you're wearing gloves and to make the icons bigger if you're wearing gloves or something. So it's, Clever. we don't really, uh, and they, they're, they're quite open and honest that saying that they have no idea what they're going to do with this technology yet. But, uh, the fact that it exists is pretty cool. So, uh, I, I imagine that if you set a radar cat loose in a room, then it could slowly build up, uh, a, a database of all of the uh, all of the objects, and you'd have to just go through and tell it what each of those objects was, and then you could use that information for all sorts of things. We've identified four hundred unsold radar cats uh, in the room. Exactly. <laughs> somebody find somebody in marketing quick. Um, another thing that I found that was uh, interesting is uh, VR um, has actually been used uh, in Europe um, to help convict Nazi war criminals. Um, they've created a, a detailed VR model of Auschwitz and. Uh, um, and it allowed uh, witnesses and uh, a whole bunch of people to actually, um, uh, I guess, travel back there and identify who was where and what was going on. Um, the prosecutors actually built a model um, to help uh, understand how Germany chose to pers- uh, prosecute Nazi war criminals um, over the past 70 years. Um, and it's been useful in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah. So something that's possibly... Uh really hard to follow that in terms of yeah. its lightness yeah. um, and similar to the idea of uh, finding objects. Are you guys aware of the Wi-Fi enabled kettle, the eye kettle? I saw someone was trying to boil it today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So basically what has happened is that there is now a device that is, it's, uh, you can uh, ostensibly control your kettle to boil water using an app. Um, a, a data, data uh, scientist from the UK has bought one and then spent 12 hours trying to boil a kettle just because um, it was it was a bit too glitchy. He ended up going into the code and trying to uh, work out the bugs himself and then live tweeted the entire thing. It took him 11 hours to boil a cup of tea. Pretty exciting. It was just ridiculous. <laughs> Do you, I'm speechless. 
<laughs> do, do you know how much stuff those got, those little guys suck? The um, the kettle because I've got such old circuits in my apartment. I have to. There's only one room in the house that I can boil a kettle just because it puts so much strain on the on the oh, circuits. Totally. And you know now that they're Wi-Fi enabled, they're hackable. Mm. So your next door neighbour can just boil your kettle you at will <laughs> and then have it thrown on you at some. <laughs> That would be amazing, except for that last one. Really quite scary. Um, thanks for tuning in tonight. We've had a lot of fun. Uh, thanks to our guests, uh, Lauren Rosewarn and Nyuka Gori. Uh, we've been bite into it. Uh, you can find all of our stuff online. We'll put some links up on the episode notes on the website, and um, plus the tracks, of course. Uh, up next is Anthony Carew and the International Pop Underground. So thoroughly recommend you stick around for that. We'll catch you next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au. 